electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Stocks broadly higher to kick off a new trading week with the Dow up more than 600 points as we head toward the close. The most important hour of trading starts right now. Welcome to the closing bell. I'm Melissa Lee in today for Sarah Eisen, who is on assignment in Davos. Let's take a check on where we stand in the markets. The Dow Jones Industrial Average surging higher, up by 2%, helped by J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs. Walmart really called the J.P. Morgan Jamie Dimon rally. We'll get more on that in just a few minutes. Check out the S&P sector winners today, though. As I mentioned, led by Strength in Banks, following optimistic comments from Jamie Dimon at the Investor Day. Energy not too far behind, even though WTI is fairly flat on the session. It's up by two and three quarters percent. Staples uh, getting a bid to up two percent. Coming up on today's show, can you trust this market bounce back? We'll ask Fundstrat's Tom Lee if he thinks the bottom is behind us or if there is more pain to come. Plus, video game stocks have held up relatively well during the latest bout of selling. We'll talk to the CEO of Take-Two about the closing of its deal to buy Zynga and about fresh M&A speculation in the space. We begin this hour, though, with the banks. Jamie Dimon wrapping up remarks at the J.P. Morgan Investor Day, where earlier comments helped spawn this rally we are seeing in the financials. Leslie Picker is there on the ground at the conference with the very latest. Leslie. Hey, Melissa, that's right. Chairman and CEO Jamie Dimon just wrapping up J.P. Morgan's Investor Day with the Q&A portion of the event. He shared an analogy that economic risks like war in Ukraine and QT are akin to storm clouds. There are storm clouds and we hope they mitigate. The things that we are seeing are serious, as you may see, in your lifetime. They may mitigate as opposed to it's a tsunami, which is not going to mitigate. That was what happened in 08. Analysts say that Diamond must not see an imminent risk of recession or else the firm wouldn't have lifted net interest income guidance. That's the key to today's stock moves, not just to J.P. Morgan, but also its rate-sensitive peers like City Bank of America and Wells Fargo. J.P. Morgan said that NII will surpass $56 billion this year, up from prior forecasts. A tailwind for that important profitability metric is higher rates. So when asked about inflation, Diamond stressed that the Fed has to raise rates and do quantitative tightening, although he said He's not sure how they're going to do it. He just says it's something that needs to be done. There were also several questions about expenses and spending, the firm reiterating intentions to spend $77 billion this year. Diamond said he spent the whole day outlining where those expenditures are going, including the importance of technology and cyber. J.P. Morgan shares up seven uh, and a quarter percent right now. Wow. Quite a turnaround considering the decline that they saw in January when they last talked to investors, yes. Leslie. I'm wondering what they're talking, what they're saying about the consumer. We heard the CEO Wells Fargo just last week talk about the deterioration of the consumer's ability to pay. J.P. Morgan sounds a little bit more optimistic about how the consumer will fare. Yes. Much more optimistic. You heard Diamond this morning talk about the strength of the consumer, the strength of the economy, largely thanks to quantitative easing, to monetary easing, to fiscal policy as well. So he said that should be that should bode well if we do go into a recession. He also talked about the credit quality and said that a lot of their businesses are really, really focused 
on prime consumers and therefore he's not that worried about the potential stresses in the economy and what that would mean for their risk exposure. All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker at the J.P. Morgan Investor Day. Strong performance of the banks helping lift the entire market today. Stocks bouncing across the board after the Dow logged its eighth straight week of losses. Is this the start of a sustained comeback? Let's bring in Tom Lee, managing partner at Fundstrat Global Advisors. Tom, is this rally convincing to you? Uh, you know, I, I would say for anyone who's an investor, there's a lot of bargains out there. I mean, there's so many stocks that have been obliterated in the last eight weeks. Uh, we've been highlighting how companies with faster revenue growth now traded a discount to companies that actually have negative revenue growth. So there's been more of a investors getting out of positions, not really looking at price. And so I think a lot of stocks are pretty attractive risk reward. I like how you qualify that if you're an investor, meaning that's a longer term horizon. Um, in the near term, Tom, I'm wondering how you think the markets start digesting this idea of a potential recession. And now now creeping to the conversation, there's a talk of stagflation out there. Um, whether or not you think it's true, and I believe that you're in the boat who thinks that it's not true, it's out there and it's a concern. So how does the market process that? We've seen what's happened in the past seven weeks for the Dow and the past eight weeks for the S&P and NASDAQ. Uh, yes. I mean, the... You know, it's clear that the central case for investors is the Fed's going to tighten until they achieve what they want, which is, you know, engineering a soft landing. But really what they'd like to see is a demand destruction by either jobs falling or, uh, you know, GDP contracting. And I, I think the thing that is not really priced and very difficult to price is that a lot of things could go right. I mean, something as simple as... Uh, labor market could start to ease because you get rebounders, people coming back to the workforce, or the job market weakens, or we could have a, a real decline in goods prices now that we've seen it from these retailers, they have too much inventory, that's actually deflationary. You know, some supply chains could come back online better than expected, and, and possibly the war could end. I mean, so I think if you think the cumulative probability of, of many of these things is much greater than the market's discounting. That means stocks and the Fed could actually be much further along than people realize. You've been taking a look at the data, Tom, data from Indeed, for instance, and I'm wondering what you see and how you interpret that. There's been some pullback in hiring in certain sectors, which would seem to me like, it, it, on the surface, it, that's bad news. Um, but that's actually what the Fed wants to happen. Yeah, I actually think um, the job market's really important to watch. And, and I, think it, I think the market and investors and your audience has to be aware the Fed really has to work with some lag data. The JOLTS report that they cite from their May FOMC meeting was, from, was with data from March 31. It's always six weeks lagged. And that's why our team's been looking at the Indeed data, which was actually updated daily. There's four industries that have accounted for the majority of the rise in job postings. That's retail leisure, healthcare, and then construction. And as we highlight in our note, if you look at the data since March 31, all four have actually seen a pretty big downturn. In healthcare, it's not because people aren't going to see the doctor. It's just that the, the staffing required for COVID has drastically declined. So I think the job market could be a lot softer than the Fed has in mind when they say that the JOLTS data shows it's the tightest job market in history. I mean, everything since March 31 shows it's weakened a lot. Why doesn't that give you pause for concern, Tom, if the job market is softer than we think? I mean, the whole the whole bolt 
you know, one major pillar of the bull case is that the consumer remains strong, that wages remain strong, the consumer can handle inflationary spikes and periods of inflation because they have better jobs, et cetera. But if we are seeing softness in the job market that perhaps the official data isn't showing, then shouldn't we really be worried? It, it seems to beg yeah. for some sort of adjustment in the market. Well, it's a good question. It's like, a, is it a heads I win, tails I lose or whatever? Um, I think it's what the market's going to care about is monetary policy, because this is really the first time the Fed's using the channel of wealth effect to try to slow the economy, um, not through tightening credit as much as trying to really hit demand. If the job market weakens, that's going to alleviate the biggest pressure point, which, as Powell said many times, it's the tightest job market in history. So I think if that pressure valve eases, it starts to take a lot of pressure, especially from the market's perspective about what the Fed has to do. And that's why I think stocks could actually rally pretty substantially. Again, there's many paths for, for positive outcomes. And I think the central case of this is a, a tightening until we have a crash, you know, even Jamie Dimon's comments today really address the fact that maybe the market central case is too hawkish. All right, Tom, we'll see. We'll leave it there. Thank you, Tom Lee, Funstrat. Always good to see you. After this break, shares of Take-Two handily outperforming the S&P 500 this month. And today, the company is closing its deal to buy rival Zynga. We'll talk to CEO Strauss Zelnick about the merger and the latest speculation in the video game space next. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Shares of Take-Two up more than 6%. The video game giant behind Grand Theft Auto and NBA 2K completing its $12.7 billion acquisition of Zynga today. The deal was first announced back in January. Joining us now in an exclusive interview, Take-Two Interactive CEO and Chairman Strauss Zelnick. Strauss, great to see you. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Um, interesting day to think about uh, how the industry is shaping up, Strauss. You're closing your deal with Zynga. You're pure play gaming. We've got Microsoft and Activision on, on another side. And EA potentially looking for a buyer, potentially a non-game uh, players, like a Comcast, like an Apple, et cetera. H- how do you think about that world in which you fit, where you're pure play and your competitors potentially are teaming up with bigger tech companies? Well, look, at the end of the day, our job collectively is and individually is to make hits. And uh, we have sufficient resources, to say the least now, to deliver hits, not just across console and PC, but also, of course, 
in the mobile market as well. Mobile will now represent about 50% of our net bookings. Um, EA is a, is a tough competitor, uh, a great company run by a great executive. Activision is the number one pure play company in the space. Um, we don't take competition for granted or lightly at all. However, there's nothing about those companies being part of larger enterprises, and that, assuming, of course, the speculation of, about EA is correct, and I'm not at all certain that it is, uh, that would interfere with our ability to create hits. Do you think it gives them an advantage at all in terms of platform or distribution, getting, getting at gamers in different ways? Well, I wouldn't want to underestimate those companies. Uh, I, don't, I don't underestimate anyone. It's a tough market. That said, what drives distribution is the quality of what you do. And we're really proud of the quality of our products, uh, the products that we have historically had and built here at Take Two, and the new hits that are coming to us now with the, the combination with Zynga. So if we do our job right, if we uh, continue to aim to be the most creative, the most innovative, and the most efficient entertainment company in the world, distribution uh, will take care of itself. I want to talk about competition in, in terms of other releases um, to your games. There's some concern out of your, your last earnings release, which was just last week, hard to believe, um, that GTA Online and NBA 2K were facing some competition. Can you give us some color as to how, how long those headwinds will last? Some of that competition is just high-profile releases from competitors. Some of that is some very successful releases of your own in your own portfolio. Uh, I think you're referring to our recurrent consumer spending, which in the fourth quarter of the last fiscal year moderated a bit for Grand Theft Auto Online and NBA 2K. These are huge, massive franchises. Grand Theft Auto Online has been in market since 2013 and has better engagement than many years in the past. Uh, NBA 2K22 is one of the best titles ever created in our basketball franchise, and the results are massive. We've sold 165 million units of Grand Theft Auto V and over 10 million units of NBA 2K22. So this is a great news story, not even a good news story. And at the same time, yes, it's a competitive marketplace. And sometimes we'll see a bit of decline in engagement. Uh, these are highly resilient uh, growth titles. We feel really good about the future. Sports, of course, is a very important part of your franchise, Strauss. And I'm wondering if you're interested in FIFA, in a FIFA partnership. Uh, well, the, the news was not lost on us, um, and uh, <laughs> we're not in uh, the soccer business yet. Okay, not yet. <laughs> you leave that open, though, it sounds like. All right, no comment there. <laughs> Let me ask you about GameStop, um, which you know is a, is a partner of a different sort. Uh, they're announcing a, a crypto wallet for crypto as well as NFTs. And I'm wondering if you think that that's something that you would look into, the use of crypto and NFTs within the gaming platform? Well, we haven't done anything yet with NFTs. Um, we, we, we sell digital goods, and our consumers love that. Mm -hmm. And NFT is simply a durable digital good, where it's guaranteed to be singular or rare. And so I think that's pretty exciting. Uh, I think at the same time, we want to make sure that we're not asking our consumers to speculate. And there is this overhang of speculation in all things crypto and all things NFT. So do I believe there's a durable opportunity for non-fungible tokens going forward within the interactive entertainment business? 
I do. I want to make sure that it's in service of a great entertainment experience, and it's also in service of treating our consumers fairly. All right, Strauss, we're going to leave it there. It's always great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Strauss Zelnick of Take Two. Let's get a check in the markets here where we continue our rally here uh, with the Dow higher by 1.9 percent. That's 600 points on the Dow. S&P up by 1.7 percent. NASDAQ composite up by 1.3 percent. Up next, Mike Santoli breaks down the latest CEO confidence data and what they could foretell about a possible recession in America. And as we head to break, check out some of today's top search tickers on CNBC.com. The 10-year yield getting the most interest, followed by Tesla, Apple, Amazon, and the S&P 500. You'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Stocks are rebounding today with all major averages trading in the green after the Dow's longest streak of weekly losses since 1923. But the macro climate and market swings are translating into plunging CEO sentiment. Mike Santoli's got a closer look in today's dashboard. Mike. Yeah, Melissa, plunging CEO sentiment from stock prices going down, or at least for the same issues that, that is driving stock prices down. And to me, it's a much more rapid and direct impact of declining share prices relative to the wealth effect on spending. And what you see here is a very interesting level that we've reached and CEO confidence. I want to just draw this across here. And you'll see it's about as low as it gets without being on the verge of a recessionary level. The shaded areas are recessions, right? So we plunge below that here. Uh, you actually have the 2000 recession, obviously 2008. But you did reach this level a couple of times, like in 98 and 2011. What happened then? Near-miss recessions, 20% declines in the stock market, but not quite at a, at a closing level, same as we have right now. So it seems as if we're on that kind of same mode as we are with credit spreads, yield curve, all these indicators that say, yes, things are late cycle, things are slowing, but not clearly just yet in recessionary terms. One final point, Melissa, this right here was off the chart previously, right? So you had this massive surge in CEO confidence coming out of the recession with all the stimulus. So it's unclear if we're operating on the same scale as we were historically. Presumably, CEOs don't feel good, Mike, and they won't spend. They're not going to be investing in their business, or can we not make that, you know, I think you can make that leap. I mean, I think arguably it means 
a little more careful about hiring, a little more careful perhaps about capital investment. Uh, sometimes it translates into M&A, but then you have maybe I'm willing to sell because I'm less confident. So you can get some of that, that action there. Interestingly, uh, repairing of balance sheets, maybe they're going to pay down a little more debt yeah. if you feel like you have to build up a cushion. All right, Mike, thanks. See you later. In other management news, a new report looking at boardroom diversity found that women are making progress towards closing gender gaps. Julia Borson has that story for us. Julia. Well, Melissa, the average percentage of women on the boards of America's thousand largest public companies, that's the Russell 1000, increased from an average of 23.8% to 28.2% between 2019 and 2021. That's according to new analysis from Just Capital. But just 3% of those 1,000 companies had equal or higher representation of women on their boards in 2021. That's up from 2% two years earlier. Just Capital points to General Motors, Citigroup, Procter & Gamble, Merck, and Nielsen, saying that those five companies are the only ones among its list of the top 100 performing companies across ESG issues, with boards that are at least 40% female and have at least one committee chaired by a woman. And they also raise the question, does diversity drive results? A study out on Friday tried to answer just that question. Among the 72 S&P 500 companies headquartered in California, those with boards with higher diversity across gender, race, and age of its board members saw higher revenue growth of 24.2% compared to 20.7% revenue growth for those with a lower diversity score. And California is in focus because a judge just last week struck down the law mandating board diversity threshold. So, Melissa, certainly one to watch. Yep. Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. Up next, venture capitalist Bradley Tusk explains why he thinks his industry is to blame for recent IPO flops in the tech sector. Tech is one of the worst performers so far this year. One of the culprits could be venture capitalists. That's according to our next guest. Let's bring in Bradley Tusk, founder and CEO of Tusk Ventures. Bradley, great to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Where was the error made? In terms of venture capitalists' calculations, was it that they were too optimistic about these companies? They didn't stress test these companies enough for, for bad times? No, where, was no. the, where was the error? This answer is going to shock you, but it's actually greed, uh, which pretty much drives every bad decision uh, that we see most of the time. And look, here's the problem. Uh, because institutional investors were willing to allocate a lot more money to venture capital, VCs kept raising bigger and bigger funds, in part because 2% of a much bigger fund nets you a lot of money without any risk every year than 2% of a smaller fund. But if you raise an $800 million Series A fund, you can't write a $2 million check. Right? You've got to write a $20 million check to make it work. You can't put a $20 million check into a small company, so the valuation has to be a lot higher to justify it. So I would say in order for people to justify chasing higher management fees every single year, Fund sizes got too big, valuations got too big, and then by the time that it went through you know, growth equity, Series E, Series F, and hit the market, these companies are just wildly overvalued. And I think the market's actually been pretty smart and accurate in sort of bringing them back down to where they should be. Now, people at home, Bradley, are going to look at the screen and say, this guy's a, a VC also. <laughs> so you're an early stage VC. So you're saying yeah. that this is happening in, in the later stages of venture capital. I mean, so you're pointing fingers, it, basically. It, it, 
No, no, no. It's, it's happening everywhere. I would say, you know, we have kept our fund size pretty small. Our most recent fund's 140 million, so I think we've, we've kept it pretty reasonable. But no, you, you see it across the board. Um, the growth equity part to me seems the craziest because I just don't understand how you could invest in, uh, you know, a, a late series tech startup that you know is going to get knocked down as soon as they IPO. Uh, but no, I, I think everyone shares the book here. It's fun to talk about venture capitalists being greedy. I mean, people love to, to think that the people who are once making a lot of money are just simply greedy. Um, but what are the repercussions in terms of funding new companies? I would imagine that it's, you know, as a young company, it's much more difficult to get that check. Um, maybe it's harder to bring yeah. these companies to market. Maybe there's a gap now in the development of companies in the pipeline. All of that is true. So there are companies who are now raising that are really struggling, who if it was six months ago or even three months ago, uh, would have been inundated with term sheets and offers. So there's a really, really significant lag now, not just in valuation, but speed to market, uh, willingness of venture capitalists to deploy capital. So, you know, there's, there is definitely a price that's being paid for. On the other hand, um, to me, this is a tremendous opportunity because valuations are down. Um, there's a lot more opportunity to really diligence these companies before having to put in a term sheet. And we're looking to deploy capital pretty rapidly. Growth at all costs is not in uh, favor in the public marketplace, Bradley. So what's happening in the private marketplace? Are companies getting small? Are they girding for, for the worst case scenario in terms of uh, what their headcount yeah. looks like, what their investment looks like? Yeah, so you're seeing a few things. One is people are trying to accumulate as much cash as could possibly get. So you're seeing some companies do inside rounds just to put more cash on the balance sheet. Um, you're seeing people cut whatever they can to reduce the monthly burn rate. Um, you are seeing layoffs at, at some of these companies as well. We've had two portfolio companies that have conducted layoffs recently. So, yeah, in, in every single way, founders and CEOs are aware that the, the party is over, at least for now. And if they want to make it through to their end, they're going to need as much cash as possible. Bradley, good to get your perspective. Thank you. Thank you, Bradley. Bradley Tusk. All right, let's get a check on where we stand in the markets on this uh, rally Monday, if you will. Again, it's the J.P. Morgan rally because uh, J.P. Morgan is really helping the Dow and the S&P here. The Dow is higher, holding on to a 600-point gain here. S&P up by 67. NASDAQ is up by one and a third percent. Last week, FTX started offering zero commission stock trades. This week, the crypto exchange may be shopping for a stock trading brokerage. You've got the details straight ahead. And a programming note, do not miss tonight's special, Inflation in Your Stocks, hosted by Becky Quick and featuring several top CEOs. That is tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern Time here on CNBC. What is Wall Street buzzing about today? Once again, it's FTX, the crypto brokerage that announced last week it was getting into stock trading. Now, it may be shopping for a partner. Kate Rooney's got the details. Kate. Hey, Melissa, crypto exchange FTX has been quietly shopping for stock trading startups and looking for potential deals. Sources tell me the crypto firm has approached at least three privately held brokerage companies about an acquisition. And this is according to sources familiar with those talks who asked not to be named because those discussions were confidential. The startups included Webull, Apex Clearing and Public.com. No comment from those companies or FTX on this, but it does speak to FTX's ambitions in the space and a broader effort by the industry to bring crypto and stocks and that trading both assets under one roof. Just last week, we had FTX announce its official move to offer stocks. It's already made a couple of strategic investments in the space as well. In April, it invested in a stock exchange operator, IEX. And then there was that 7.6 percent stake 
in Robinhood. That came through FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried, and it fueled some questions about deals in this space and Robinhood's future as an M&A target as its share price drops more than 80 percent from the high. Bottom line, Melissa, I'm told, expect more consolidation in the space as prices come down. Back to you. Okay, thank you, Kate Rooney. Up next, Bank of America's Jill Carey Hall on why recession risks may already be priced into small cap stocks. That story, plus banks booming and city turning bearish on some big name retailers. We take you inside the market zone. And coming up tonight on Fast Money, will the spring market sell off lead to a summer of corporate love? Our traders will take a look at some companies who could tie the knot now that the price is right. That is coming up 5 p.m. Eastern time on Fast Money. We are now in the closing bell market zone. CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santilli is here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, Frank Holland on a potential huge deal in the tech industry and Bank of America's Jill Carey Hall on the outlook for small caps. We begin with the rally today. All 11 sectors trading higher after the Dow finished last week lower for the eighth week in a row. Mike, we're losing some steam here on the NASDAQ as we go into the close. What do you make of this rally so far? A little bit. Um, I, you know, obviously a lot of things lined up to have a lot of people, whether they're bullish or bearish, uh, expect a little bit of a bounce from here. Uh, the S&P is already up 4% from Friday's low, and I think what's on everybody's mind is you know, less than a week ago we were 5% off the prior week's uh, low, and it seemed as if we were already also primed for another rally. So I, I do think that the fact that you've had a series of these short live bounces is on uh, traders' minds. On the other hand, you know, one thing that distinguishes this week from the prior ones is the calendar. This is a pretty strong week after May expiration leading into Memorial Day. I think, if anything, the market got a little more oversold and sentiment got more uh, depressed coming into this week. So, in theory, this this could have some, uh, some legs to it, even if almost everyone believes it might uh, only have headroom up to maybe a 10% rally off the lows. We are seeing real help today, Mike from the real beaten down big cap names. And I'm not just talking about Apple and Microsoft, which are strong and holding on to their gains into the close. But Walmart is finally catching a meaningful bid after after last week's just decimation of market cap. Yeah, absolutely. Also, I think that reflects some kind of separation of winners and losers that's uh, being attempted here today uh, because not all the retailers are strong. It is kind of a Walmart, Costco story in terms of consumer. And then, of course, the banks are are a pretty uh, big exception to what's been the rule, which is meaning their upside leadership today. They have not been for a long time. Yeah. Speaking of the banks, financials are the best performing sector in the market today. This after Jamie Dimon's bullish comments at J.P. Morgan's investor conference, those sent shares of big bank stocks higher. Overall, bank stocks are down 16% in 2022, but Citigroup CEO Jane Frazier made a bullish case for the group when she sat down with Sarah this morning at the World Economic Forum in Davos. I think a number of them are undervalued, um, but there's a lot of uncertainty out there at the moment. And as I say, we're seeing equities coming down anyway in the asset allocation of investors. But um, I personally, as you would expect, think there's quite a lot of upside there. A lot of uncertainty and storm clouds, as Jamie Dimon (laughs) put it, uh, maybe hanging over the economy, Mike. But they do seem, or Jamie at least, seems to be more than willing to be uh, sort of more optimistic when when it comes to his outlook for the consumer, particularly when you think about 
uh, J.P. Morgan rolling out credit products. You don't necessarily roll out new credit products when you think that there's an imminent slowdown or an imminent recession coming. That's right. And he certainly didn't flag any rapid erosion of, you know, customer credit uh, experience right now. So, you know, with the, with the group down 30 percent off its highs, clearly it was discounting a high risk of an adverse economic scenario, the consumer really losing steam, credit uh, really getting uh, going south in a big way on the corporate side. So, you know, I think that just the, the words from him, as well as Bank of America's Brian Moynihan, you know, really doing nothing to bless the worst fears of the market is enough today to give a lift because the valuations really have come in quite a bit. I mean, you know, Jane Frazier, no surprise, thinks her stock is cheap because it's really, really cheap, way under book value and has been for a long time. Yeah, the investment banking side of the business, the uh, equity side of the business, so it could be in for some more trouble. Pinto over at uh, J.P. Morgan was saying that the market volatility he expects to last for, what was this phrasing, the next couple of years. That's a long time for this market volatility to last. Yes. Um, now, you know, it does go in these sort of long cycles, uh, higher volatility, although it seems like we rushed to a place here, you know, down 20 percent on the S&P, uh, bond volatility almost off the charts, you know, outside of crises. So it seems like the market is, uh, has gone a long distance toward kind of handicapping that type of environment. The issuance calendar doesn't look good. I agree. Capital markets looks like it's still not a place where people are willing to go out on a limb and say things are going to get good uh, anytime soon. Uh, as always, the question is, what are the stocks already discounted? Right, exactly. Um, don't miss more coverage, by the way, from Davos tomorrow on CNBC, including Sarah's interview with the CEO of Micron. That's at 10 a.m. Eastern time on Squawk on the Street. Keeping with technology here, shares of VMware soaring on multiple reports that the cloud company is in advanced talks to be acquired by chipmaker Broadcom. A deal could end up being one of the largest mergers ever in the tech sector. Frank Holland joins us. Um, so, Frank, you know, Broadcom is a serial acquirer or tries to be. Why, why VMware? Well, you know, uh, really quick, Melissa, just some news out from Dow Jones just a second. Uh, according to Dow Jones, at least, uh, Broadcom is discussing buying VMware for about 140 a share. That would make this potentially a $60 billion deal up from the $50 billion that the Financial Times reported just a few days ago. So now to answer your question, it's really a big bet on the hybrid cloud. That's a combination of having data on site totally controlled by a particular company, in addition to having access to putting data and getting applications on the public cloud. And for large enterprises, think a big bank or a multinational corporation, that's really the reality for the foreseeable future. And then keep this in mind, VMware has about 50% of what's called the virtualization market. That's where a company like a VMware takes your on-premise workloads and they just maximize them. They make them more efficient, they make them better, and they kind of just work with what you already have and make that better. Um, so if you believe that economic slowdown might be coming, a slowdown in IT spending might be coming, you would want, if you were a Broadcom, the ability to maximize what companies already have in addition to offering them a, a more of a pure play cloud which is where VMware was transitioning to and having, according to analysts, a little bit of difficulty. It's interesting to think about, uh, you know, where the stock is trading now. Frank, you had mentioned that 140 a share is the number that just crossed, according to Dow Jones. The stock is nowhere near that, uh, Mike. And you think back to the last big purchase that that uh, Avago or Broad, Broadcom, I should say, tried, and that was for Qualcomm. Um, and that, of course, didn't happen on, on some security concerns, uh, Mike. What, what's yeah. your take on, on sort of the regulatory environment this time around? Yeah, I mean, it seems a little bit 
um, maybe less in the crosshairs. I mean, knowing what we know right now in terms of product overlap and things like that, it's outside uh, the chip area. Uh, you know, what you would take from Broadcom share performance down 4% is probably, I would say, on a net basis, encouraging uh, for the Broadcom folks. It's not a big penalty that, uh, that the market is applying on this idea of paying, you know, this floated price right there. It's kind of fascinating how Broadcom is rebuilding this kind of tech conglomerate. I mean, you could go back to the old IBM. They made chips. They had, so you know, software services. They had, you know, all kinds of other products across the enterprise. And so, you know, try to do it in a smart way, pay the right price, and, and just shepherd those cash flows for investors. Yeah, Frank, this is really a, a Michael Dell story, ultimately. I mean, he's a, he's a major owner of VMware sure. shares, isn't he? Yeah, he owns 40% of VM, VMware shares. Obviously, uh, the thought is that he has a lot of input on, input on this deal and a lot of sway on this deal. One other thing, um, if you look at some of the other stocks that are competitors with VMware, we're talking about Nutanix. Um, those shares are up. Uh, rumors have it that Bain is eyeing them for acquisition. IBM, Mike just mentioned them. They actually made acquisition of Red Hat, which is another or was when it was private, a VMware competitor back in 2019. Those shares are up today. So this deal is actually creating a lot of excitement, a lot of interest just in this idea of the hybrid cloud, as opposed to those pure play cloud players that we've seen really under pressure due to interest rates and other factors. Frank, thank you. Frank Holland. City, meantime, turning bearish on several apparel retailers on concerns that a pullback in discretionary spend will result in margin declines. A firm downgrading Abercrombie & Fitch, American Eagle, Kohl's, and Ralph Lauren from a buy to a neutral. Also cutting Carter's from buy to sell, reducing gap in children's place from neutral to sell. Courtney Reagan joins us. Uh, Courtney, 2021 was a boon for retail. Retailers cut back on promotions. Is that over? Yeah, Melissa, it is such a good question because I think 2021 became an anomaly for so many retailers and those of us that follow it closely. After years and years of having to promote to get consumers to buy, all of a sudden, average unit retail was going up. Margins were getting padded. It was pretty amazing to see the consumer demand and supply finally sort of be copacetic with one another to make that a reality. But now retailers, especially apparel retailers, have had to work really hard to get all that inventory in, get ahead of the supply chain problems. And now all of a sudden they've got more than they can sell. It's just not matching demand. And it's not the consumers aren't able to buy apparel right now. It's that frankly, they're not really interested in buying it. They're shifting what they're buying when it comes to discretionary items because of what we've seen from inflationary pressures on the items that they have to buy. And so City's putting that all together and saying, look, apparel is really going to be crunched. As a result, we're downgrading all of these players. We think this year is going to be really hard. And bye-bye to uh, some of those average unit retail and increasing merchandise margins you're going to have to promote to sell. You have way more inventory than you have sales demand that matches up with that. But I take this all together and say, look, what we went through during the pandemic and what some of these retailers took the opportunity to do to really right-size their business and to improve their operations wasn't lost. There may be a few bumpy quarters, but if you're a company like a Ralph Lauren or like a Tapestry or like a Capri that took the opportunity to look at your pricing really tough. Look at your inventory. Figure out where it makes sense. In the long run, you'll still probably be better off than you were before when you took the chance when everything was really beaten down to really evaluate your business. But I do think that there's going to be some pain here in the short term. And after last week, expectations, frankly, are just really low. Yeah. And Mike, I guess when you think about what the banks are saying about consumers, the consumers have the money to pay. And to Courtney's point and to the points that were made by the CEOs of Target, and the CEOs of Walmart last week, they're just paying 
different things. They're spending on different things. So yes, the wallet is still there. The wallet could be strong, but it may not be beneficial to, to all the retailers out there. It's probably beneficial to the gas pump, but not to not to a you know a Gap, for instance. That's right. And you know, as Courtney was saying, it's really a clothing story. I mean, Best Buy ahead of its numbers, stock about flat today. Uh, massive inventories. Uh, you know, from a macro basis, maybe not the worst news. It's you know the retailers' margins may suffer, but the idea that you're going to have pricing come off the boil, uh, perhaps a little bit, is not unwelcome to anybody who's trying to you know see if the Fed gets a little bit of help on what it's trying to do over the summer in terms of restraining inflation. All right, Courtney, thanks. Courtney Reagan. Russell 2000 is higher today, but underperforming the major averages. Overall, small caps continue to lag slightly behind the S&P 500 this year, down 20 percent, while the S&P is down 17 percent. Joining us now is B of A Securities, head of U.S. small cap and mid-cap strategy, Jill Carey Hall. Jill, great to have you with us. And I guess the question for, for investors of, of all size companies is, what have we priced in in terms of recession fears, in terms of stagflation fears? Um, has, have small caps, in your belief, priced in more? than the large cap stocks, for instance? Yeah, thanks, Melissa, for having me. And and I do think they have. It's, you know, we've seen some interesting trends this year. And, you know, small caps have already sold off, um, you know, about 30% from their highs late last year. The typical drawdown in small caps, when you look at, you know, prior recessions going back to the 1950s, has been on average around, you know, 36 to 40%. So we're actually about 80% of the way there in terms of what we typically see. Um, and, and valuation multiples have come down to, you know, pretty similar to where we've seen on an absolute basis um, during prior recessions. Now, for large caps, um, you know, valuation multiples are still above their long-term average. And, you know, in our view, based on moves that we've seen and and looking at the equity risk premium, large caps can only be discounting about a 40% recession risk at this point. So I think, you know, if recession risks continue to rise, there certainly could be more downside risk to equities across the size segment at this point. Um, but but we do think that the risks are more adequately being reflected in, in small caps and that, you know, from here, large caps could actually have further to fall. In inflationary environments like the one we are in right now, Jill, if inflation continues to go higher or just remains high, how do small caps traditionally perform versus uh, their larger counterparts? Well, so it's, you know, I think from from looking at prior historical inflationary regimes, it's been interesting. Small caps typically have held up well, um, better better than large caps during historical inflationary environments. We think about, you know, parts of the 60s, the the late 70s, early 80s. Um, And when we've looked at margins, small cap margins have actually been uh, less detrimentally impacted by inflation than large caps. And I think, you know, what you have going on today, you've had many large multinational companies have seen their margins benefit from, um, you know, lower lower taxes, lower labor costs abroad amid globalization. Um, now, if globalization is, is reversing, um, we, we do think that, you know, that this could be a headwind to, to margins for many large cap company, multinational companies. Um, so, so small caps of, you know, stagflationary environments, which, you know, again, is not our base case. We are looking for upside to the S&P 500 from here this year. No, no recession, you know, slower but continued economic growth. Um, but but a stagflationary environment, historically, not good for equities, but you have actually seen small caps outperform large caps. Uh, in terms of sectors within small caps, Jill, you are actually saying to look at, and this is not a sector question, but you're saying to look at dividends. And I'm wondering if there are any sp- specific sectors that, that are more inclined to give dividends within the small cap space. 
Yeah, I think it's, you know, typically when you're in late cycle backdrops, um, you know, dividends continue to, to matter um, or, or, you know, begin to matter more. And, and that often continues during downturns. The dividend yield is a, is a, one of the top performing factors. We've seen this in our, our small cap and our large cap work, where our view is that if the Fed is hiking rates, you know, cash becomes more valuable. Um, it, we're in a you know lower return world in, environment where if equity returns are, are pretty tepid, then then total return matters. So you know even within small caps, where investors may may often be thinking about small caps for growth, um, you know just since the start of last year, since the start of 2021, um, just dividend paying stocks within the Russell 2000 are up about 20 percent versus non dividend paying stocks are down about 20. So you know really wide spreads just based on dividends. Um, so I think, you know, in addition to dividends, we focus on quality. Quality has been a big differentiating factor between, you know, best and worst performers within the market, within small caps. Um, and from a sector perspective, you know, financials, which which we were speaking, speaking about earlier on the program, um, energy, the, these are two more cyclical sectors that continue to rank well in our work, both in large and small. I think one sector where you do see differentiation in, in how it looks, what it, determining whether based on whether you're a large or small cap investor is healthcare, where, you know, healthcare and biotech has really been the biggest detractor from Russell 2000 performance this mm -hmm. year. Um, healthcare is outperforming in large caps. I think, you know, there, there's been a lot of challenges to, to small cap healthcare with, you know, right. higher rates, the COVID backdrop, et cetera. So that, that's a sector mm -hmm. where, you know, we do see more risk, but, but an M&A pickup could be one positive. Jill, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Jill Carey Hall. Under two minutes ago in the trading day, Mike, uh, you got some more on the market internals. Yeah, pretty solid. If you look at the New York Stock Exchange volume split, it's about two-thirds upside volume uh, versus downside, a little better than that. So certainly not a huge one-sided rush, but definitely positive. Take a look at the U.S. dollar index. It's really kind of come off the boil a fair bit. Uh, today, most of that story is euro strength after uh, Christine Lagarde of the ECB clarified some of their uh, moves toward uh, tighter policy. That's helping the euro, but the dollar index rolling over along with inflation expectations and perhaps the worst Fed fears. The volatility index is easing back. It's under 29, still in that frustration zone where not low enough for people to think that the market's stable, not high enough for people waiting for some kind of big rush of panic. But uh, it's definitely an improvement off of last week's highs, Melissa. Yep. Little surge of energy here as we get into the close. Uh, we are still looking at the top performing sectors in today's session, being the financials, really being helped by J.P. Morgan and Jamie Dimon specifically, sounding pretty upbeat when it comes to the shape of the consumer. Consumer credit near term, it looks pretty good, despite the storm clouds there. And take a look at the gain in Apple. Shares closing out 4% higher on the day. Dow's up almost 2% on the session. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.